All right, let's look in Matthew 21. You should have a lesson. If you need a copy of the lesson, you slip up your hands. Ken will bring that right by and get that to you. We want to do a lesson on identifying the Lordship of Christ tonight on Matthew 21. And as you can see in your notes, uh, we have quite a few different passages of Scripture we're going to go to. But in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1, it says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were to come to Bethphage, Unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied in the colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. If any man say all unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And he brought the ass and the colt, and put them on them, their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitude that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Our text verse is verse 9. The multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And our text verse is really a declaration, if you will, a declaration or a confirmation of the Lordship of Christ. They're acknowledging him that he is the prophesied king, he's the prophesied Messiah that would come, and they're acknowledging his Lordship over them. The amazing thing is, as you go through the Gospels and look at the life of Christ, uh, you see at intervals different places in his life where uh, those he was interacting with uh, or experienced the presence of Christ would identify and uh, speak in reference to his lordship. And uh, it, I think it's an important subject to think about uh, because of the fact that so many people claim that Jesus is their Lord, but they don't do what he tells them to do. And uh, so many people say that they're saved, but they certainly don't want to identify with the Lordship of Christ. But yet every person that came in contact with Christ experienced the reality of his Lordship. And so letter A there in your introductory notes is the wise men inquired. And uh, Matthew chapter 2, and I put these verses in so you could read. I wanted to read all the verses, but I wanted to give you to be able to get to them so you wouldn't have to turn to all of them. But Matthew 2, 2 says, Where is he, that the wise men inquired, where is he born king of the Jews? That establishes lordship. He is in position of authority. He is the king of the Jews. For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. And so certainly the, the concern, the desire for the wise men was they wanted to know uh, who is this or where is this one who is the Lord of all. And so the wise men inquired, let her be there, Pilate question. Uh, interesting, the questioning of Pilate to Jesus in Matthew 27, 11, 
It says, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And so the concern in reference to the accusations that were brought before Pilate about Jesus Christ, Pilate's desire was he needed to have that answer, an answer to a very important question, and that is, art thou the king of the Jews? Are you the Lord? Are you the master? Are you the one that has the authority over them? And uh, Jesus responds, thou sayest. Well, the soldiers, when Jesus was being interrogated, mocked him. The soldiers mocked. In Matthew 27 and 29, it says, When they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. They bowed the knee before him and mocked him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They may have been saying in a, in a spirit of mockery and ridicule about who Christ was, but prophetically they're stating in reality, they are stating that he is the King of the Jews. He is the Lord of all lords. And uh, he is, uh, they're mocking him by bowing down, but the reality is every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so uh, they mocked the reality of the Lordship of Christ. The other thing here is the executioner inscribed, and uh, we know Matthew 27, 37, and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And, uh, and once again, uh, without intentionally wanting to give uh, uh, that authority and wanting to recognize that authority, uh, yet prophetically, they, this one who would be the executioner of Jesus is the one who is de uh, declaring him as being the Lord of all. And then I thought of this, the thief on the cross, of course, believed. And so the thief believed in Luke 23, 42. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And when he cried out to him, he acknowledged him as the Lord, the Savior, the Messiah. And so the reality is that all these different individuals that Jesus came in contact with uh, identified the Lordship of Christ. And certainly we as believers ought to be living our lives in a way that we identify with the Lordship of Christ. And he is the Lord. And uh, so he is the master. He is the one that is in charge. So the immediate response of Jesus was to demonstrate his authority. As he's coming into Jerusalem, they're crying out, uh, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so he responds to the crowds identifying his lordship. Uh, first of all, he responds to it in the temple. And uh, chapter 21 of uh, Matthew, and we're not going to read all these verses, but in verse 12 through 17, we read about Jesus going into the temple and he sees the money changers and he rebukes them because he says, my house is to be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. And so uh, Jesus, here they are, they're crying out, Hosanna uh, to the son of David. And so Jesus goes into the temple and he demonstrates the authority that he has. He demonstrates his lordship over the temple uh, that the Jews held so dear to their hearts. And so 
He responds to the identification of Lord by exercising his authority in the temple. And then immediately after that, we see on the next day, actually, he demonstrates his authority over nature. In chapter 21, in verse 18, uh, down to verse 22, we see Jesus coming back to Jerusalem, and he comes up to the fig tree, and it's barren, there's no fruit on it, and he curses the tree. Why? How could he do that? Because as the Lord and Savior, he has a power and authority over all nature. And so uh, we see his authority in the temple, we see his authority over nature, and then we see his authority upon man in chapter 21 of Matthew and verse 28 and, uh, through 32. Uh, Jesus gives this parable of the two sons, and he gives that for the direct reason and purpose that uh, they would be able to understand that he has authority over man. And so all worship is, has to be in submission to and directed towards Christ. All of nature has to bow to the power of the one that created everything, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And every man has to give an account of his life to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the Lord of all. And he is the master of everything. And so uh, we need to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Now, we don't believe in lordship salvation. In other words, you have to make the Lord your savior by doing things in order to be saved. But it's for sure we're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, but once we're saved by grace, we are obligated to respond to the lordship of Christ. He is our Lord, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, I think I have a quote in here, but uh, he doesn't become the Lord, he is the Lord. And, uh, you know, he isn't Lord because you decide to make him Lord. He is Lord because he is Lord, period. And uh, so professors and perdition. Uh, there's who may, may, those that may profess and make statements uh, about their relationship with God but have no relationship at all, and the professors are in danger of perdition. Uh, notice, first of all, letter A, statements do not ensure reality. You know, a lot of people say a lot of things, but that doesn't mean it's true or it's right. And so uh, there was a lot of Jews and those that accused Christ, a lot of statements. There was, we just went on through a whole list of statements that different ones made in reference to the lordship and authority of Christ. But the reality is they may have stated it with their mouth, but they did not submit themselves to who Christ was in all authority. So there must be a foundation. It is more than just making a statement. There has to be a foundation that backs that statement. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so it's not just about some trend. It's not about some movement. It's based on the reality of who Christ is based on what the Bible says he is. And so there must be a foundation. In Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And so there's, there's a lot of people throwing around a lot of uh, comments about who Christ is, but their life, the fruits in their life, does not demonstrate 
that they are identified with the lordship of Christ. And so I'd be, I'd be worried if I, I knew a lot of Christian phrases and I knew a lot of biblical terms that I could say, but they did not make a difference in my life. I'd be concerned about that. Because if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so because I'm saved, the reality is I'm saved based on what the Word of God says, not just because of a statement that I say. You know, for 27 years, I, said, I thought that I was a Christian. For 37 years, I thought I was going to heaven. For 27 years, I, you know, I thought I was all right with God, even though I was living an ungodly life. Why? Because I was brought up going to church all the time. And I certainly put my time in as a kid, so I should have been okay. But the, listen, the statement is not reality. Reality is the foundation that is laid based on what the Word of God says. And so professors face perdition. Uh, because there's no foundation to support their statement. So uh, allegiances must be backed with commitment. And when we talk about the lordship of Christ, if we're really saying that we're going to surrender to the Lord and he is the master, uh, then there, it must be backed up, the allegiance, the statements that I make with commitment. Why? Because the commitments reveal sincerity. And so you can say a lot of things, but if there's no commitment to it, uh, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna be able to be, be uh, um, successful. You know, I can say, uh, well, I wanna be a professional baseball player and I'm gonna, I'm gonna play baseball one day, but I don't commit myself to learn how to play, don't put myself in physical training to be able to play, and I do not commit totally to everything that's necessary to become a professional baseball player, I can say I'm going to be a professional baseball player I want. It's not a statement of reality because it has no foundation and it has no commitment, so there's no sincerity in the, in the statement. So you can walk around and talk about Jesus, be, Jesus being the Lord all you want. If there is no commitment, there is no sincerity in the statement that you make. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And so it's, it's a very, the Christian life, sometimes people will say the Christian life is really so hard and so complicated. It really is not complicated. You have faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior. God's grace delivers you. And once his grace delivers you, he gives you the Holy Spirit to have power to be able to obey the things he commands us to, to do. It's not that difficult. And, and it's not that hard to live the Christian life because of the fact that the Holy Spirit abides in you and uh, enables you to do those things. So allegiances must be backed with commitment because that will reveal real sincerity. If I'm going to say he's my Lord, then I need to demonstrate that he's my Lord by obeying the things that he has commanded. Vain words, vain words are exposed by actions. And you know, when you have words that have no value, words that are just empty, uh, they'll be exposed because of the conduct or the actions that you have in your life. And the problem is this, they always lead to destruction. 
And, uh, you know, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16 says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. I mean, I mean, Paul's really hitting it pretty hard there. Uh, you know, your actions will become destructive if your actions are based on vain words. You profess, you say you know the Lord, but your works, your, your conduct literally deny the reality of all that Christ is. I, I think the bigger confusion that's in America in present-day Christianity is, is because of this very principle that people want a ticket to get to heaven, but they don't want to live a different lifestyle on the earth. Uh, they want to be able to enjoy all the world, all the corruption that the world uh, gives to us, but they're not willing to obey the holiness of Christ. And so it's because they have, uh, they just absolutely do not understand the reality of the Lordship of Christ. So notice Paul says in Titus, where we read, that uh, they, he says, professing that they know God, but in works they deny him. And he says, he describes their character. He says they are being abominable. Now, word's an interesting word in the Greek. Abominable just means to be detestable. It means to have a gross dislike. And Paul is saying, you know, they're, they're, they're mouthing. They're mouthing and speaking about who God is and all that God is. But they're just, they're gross. There, there is a gross dislike for them. They're detestable because of the fact they're very, they're, they're marring the very name of Christ because of declaring who he is and supposed to be in their life, but they're living completely contrary to the character of Christ. He said they're detestable. Notice that he also says that they're disobedient. The word disobedient just means to not compliant, not compliant. And uh, it means they lack conformity. And uh, over the years, I've had people get upset, and they've, you know, they've called me a legalist and all this, that, and the other, and they've called me unloving and unkind and all kinds of things because you say, wait a minute, you're supposed to live a holy life. I mean, I've actually had people not coming to church. They're coming to church. They're members of the church. They're not in church. And I go and visit them and say, you know, you need to be in church. You know, you need to be faithful to the house of God. You need to be faithful to worshiping the Lord and they get mad, and they leave the church. I mean, I'd want to be back in church if somebody cared for me that much that they're willing to follow up on me and talk to me about my absentee and my unwillingness to be obedient to the Lord. You'd think they would respond in a positive way. Why don't they? Because they will not comply to the biblical principles that are in the Word of God. Whether you like it or not, God has declared how we're supposed to live. And so Paul says, wait a minute, they have vain words. Their words have no value or no worth to them because of the fact that their lives are being destroyed because their lives are not patterning after the character of Christ. And then he ends the verse with the word reprobate. Reprobate just means not standing the test. 
unfit for service, not standing uh, standing the test. And now, um, uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, and you go through boot camp, you got to pass the PT test. You got to pass the physical test. And uh, I remember one boy he came in there. He was a fat boy, I'll tell you. And uh, I. <laughs> And uh, I remember them telling him, you're not eating anything that has carbs in it. You're not eating it. You are on salad until you lose that weight. And I mean, that poor boy, he never, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, all he could eat was salad. And I thought, oh, my goodness gracious. Well, I'll tell you what, they got him in shape. And he passed the test so he could get out of boot camp. And, uh, you know, he, and, but Paul's saying this, they live a life with vain words that literally, if you were to try them, you were to test them, you were to evaluate them, whether they're a Christian or not, they'd fail the test. And they'd be rendered unfit, unfit for service. And so this matter of the lordship of Christ, I mean, it's a, it's a powerful thing that we need to understand who Christ is, what his position is, and what is our responsibility and obligation to him. So there's professors that face perdition. Then there's believers, believers in duty. Just as important as it is to understand professors uh, and perdition, we have to understand believers and duties. And so, first of all, letter A there, um, deception, there's a deception of disobedience. See, we think because we're under grace that we can be disobedient to the Lord. And the deception that we think we don't have to be obedient to the Lord uh, gives us a little asterisk there. It provides a false assurance. And uh, many, many folks that, that if you talk to them, they say they're saved, but they struggle in their life. I mean, they don't have assurance. They, they have doubts constantly. Uh, I mean, they're just struggling in their life. And uh, what is that? That You've been deceived. You think you can live in rebellion against God and that God's not going to, uh, he's going to still could bless you and move in your life. And the reality is you start suffering the consequences of your actions. And so the deception of disobedience is you can't rebel against God and have peace uh, that to, to know that God is with you each and every day. And so deception provides false assurance. James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And so James is very clear to help us understand it is more than just verbally declaring that you're a Christian. It is living out the words that you declare you are. And don't be deceived. Don't be deceived to think that you can disobey God and uh, not um, fall into false assurance. And uh, I, I just really believe this is a real problem in uh, Christianity today. People think they can continue down a path that is moving away from um, uh, uh, the Lord and being disobedient to the Lord and everything's going to be okay in their life. And, and it's not. I was talking to someone today. I was counseling with someone today and they were uh, talking about this whole thing about young people uh, getting away from the Lord and not being in church and all this, that, and the other. And, you know, they think that they're going to get away with it. They think they're going to escape the consequences. But listen, there is a payday someday. 
There, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And, and it's going to catch up. Whether it's going to be in your own personal life or whether it's going to be with your kids, it's going to catch up to you. Uh, because God has sent his son into this world as not just the Savior, but he is the Lord of lords. And so we need to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. Don't live in false assurance. Deception will always give you false assurance. But then there's the delight of obedience. What does the delight of obedience do? It reveals real faith. And if you say that you have faith to believe that God is and Christ is the master in your life, then, then wait a minute, You're, be happy. You'll be happy to obey what the Lord has revealed to you. You'll be excited about delighting in the law of the Lord. Uh, you'll rejoice in the opportunities to be able to watch your life become uh, more and more conforming into the image of the Son of God. You'll, re you'll be excited about those things. And uh, why? Because as a believer, I have a duty to live my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. James 2, 20 through 24 says, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. And so it was Abraham's faith by which he was imputed righteous, the righteousness of God, but the righteousness of God in Abraham produced works that demonstrated the character of his God. And so, yes, we do have to delight in obedience because delighting in obedience always reveals my faith. Uh, when people see you living for God and see the changes that God has wrought in your life, I mean to tell you, they, they can't see my faith, but they can see what I do in my body and what I do in my life in the world in which I live. And so, yes, I delight in the fact that people can see my faith as I live that out for the glory of God. So uh, deception gives a false assurance. Delight gives a revealing of real faith. Well, letter C is this. There's a demonstration of works. And that's what James is talking about, this demonstration of works. Notice, first of all, uh, we'll go, let's see, we have time. Yeah, we got time. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 18. And, and since James is talking about Abraham, you're going to look at Abraham's life, and we know chapter 22 is where Abraham takes Isaac up to offer him as a sacrifice because God commanded that. Before, but before that ever came about, the demonstration of works was preceded, number one there, preceded by faith. In Genesis chapter 18, in verse 19, he says, For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. 
And so before God ever brought Abraham to experience a test of offering up his son, his only son, whom he loved, Abraham's faith had already been tested. It had already been tried. It had already been illustrated. In Genesis 21 and 4, it says, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God commanded him. And so uh, the, uh, this whole demonstration of God working in Abraham's life and Abraham surrendering to the authority of God was preceded by faith. We always start with faith, and then the works follows. Notice it was initiated immediately in uh, chapter 22. And when you start out in verses 1 through 3, and God commands Abraham to offer his son, his only son whom he loved, Abraham did not hesitate. He immediately responded. And I believe he immediately responded because he already had his faith built up before he ever got to that trial. And we must allow God to build our faith in the lordship of Christ, knowing that since he is the creator and he is the possessor of life, then everything that he deems necessary and vital in our life is just and good for us. And so I have that faith to begin with so that whenever the trial comes, whenever the opportunity comes to follow the command of God, I have no problem with responding to it because I already had faith so I can initiate it immediately. Whatever it is God impresses on my heart, we do it. And I'm just thankful for the fact that we don't have to be out of control and unsure of tomorrow because if you have faith to believe God's working in your life right now, then the one who is in authority, when he calls and he gives instruction, you can immediately respond. So it was initiated immediately. Notice it was focused on God. His response was completely focused on the Lord. And uh, Abraham was not looking to the men that were with him. He was not looking to his son as being the answer to the problem, uh, but he was looking to his God and his God alone. And so when we have faith, we can respond immediately because we're looking to God. We're not looking at the circumstances. We're not controlled by what is around us. We're just looking towards the Lord. So he is focused on God. And then he was committed to the plan of God. Chapter 22 in verse 8, Abraham did not try to change God's mind. He didn't, he didn't say, well, wait a minute, God wants me to do this. I'm going to fast and pray for a few days and see if I can change God's mind. He didn't try to change the plan of God. Uh, you know, he, he, he just responded to what God had commanded him to do in offering up his son. And so God's plan always works. And so let's be committed to the plan of God. We don't have to change who we are to reach the world. You know, everybody has this mindset that, and they always have had this mindset, whatever generation it's been in. Uh, but for 35 years, I've been saved. It's just amazing to watch that everybody thinks we always have to change everything to be able to reach the world. You don't have to change God's plan. God's plan works. We just need to use God's plan the way he designed it to be uh, fulfilled. And so he was committed to the plan of God. In verse 9 through 12 in Genesis 22, he responded to the voice of God. 
And here he is, he's ready to offer his son, his only son that he loved, but God spoke out. And may I just say this, that while you're living your life in obedience to Christ, don't close off a deaf ear to him. Always be listening because God may want to redirect your life. You know, it's just amazing to me how many times in the book of Acts that God redirects Paul's life when he's on the missionary journeys. It's amazing to watch in our lives how we think this is the direction the Lord wants us to go, and all of a sudden God steps in and changes that direction. And so we just need to respond to God's voice when he speaks to us. And you say, well, wait a minute, I had everything all planned out and all mapped out. It, you know, God does have the authority to step in and change things. He does have, a, have the authority to step in and say, no, that's not exactly what I want you to do. I want you to do this over here. You know, we started the church years ago, Gospel Light Baptist Church, and, and I always, when I went out to start the church, I felt that God wanted us there forever. And then things changed, and God directed us to leave the church, and I had a problem with that. And uh, God had to show me, wait a minute, he's the boss he is the one in authority. He is the Lord, and he can choose whether he wants to leave me there or take me somewhere else. He can make that decision. All I have to do is be willing to listen to what God is saying to me. What if Abraham wasn't listening to God? He would have uh, killed his son. And so we need to listen to God. And uh, that would be a good message to preach on. Listen to the voice of God because you're killing your children. <laughs> the reality is that's what's going on in America. We're killing the next generation. Whether it be through abortion or whatever, it be corruption or whatever it may be, we're killing off the next generation because we're not listening to the voice of God. I might have to make a sermon on that. Not only was he to respond to the voice of God, but it revealed the provision of God. And his faith that started everything ended up at the end, down in Genesis 22 and verse 13 and 14, seeing how God could provide. He declared that God had provided it. He believed that God had provided it, but now he's experiencing God providing it for him. And I just know this, that when we have faith to believe and submit ourselves to the authority of God, of the authority of Christ, uh, well, we'll see God do some great and magnificent things. Then we have the Savior and the servant. Jesus said, you call me Master and Lord, you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. So he didn't say you were happy if you know them. He said you're happy if you know these things and you do them. And so the master and the Savior. First of all, because we're talking about identifying the Lordship of Christ. First of all, in that passage, as we break it apart a little bit, we see there's personal identification. You call me Master and Lord, identifying the Lordship of Christ. Who is really in charge of your life? You know, and now, um, 
you know, I've kidded around before, and, you know, I've said, yeah, well, I'm the head of my household, and I'll tell you one thing, I make the decisions in my life, and in our home, I'm tell you, I'm, I'm the one that's the boss, and I'm in charge, and then look at Joanne, I'll say, isn't that right, honey? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but Jesus said, wait a minute, you need to have personal identification. The reality is, you call me Lord and Master, and so... You need to will it be willing to identify who is the one that's in charge, who's in charge of your life. Personal observation. He says, oh, uh, you're, if, uh, you're, uh, your Lord and Master hath washed your feet. If you watched, you observed what God has done in your life, uh, then you should do the same. And so observation, being aware of who God is and what he's doing in your life. Then a personal evaluation, let her see there, is personal evaluation. Ye also ought to wash one another's feet. So when we're talking about the lordship of Christ. If the master is willing to bend down and wash our feet, then certainly we ought to be willing to be a servant also because he's the boss and the boss did it, amen? He's the master and he did it. So he's challenging his disciples with the fact that they need to follow his uh, example. And that leads us to number letter D, their personal obligation. The servant is not greater than his Lord. Christ was mocked and ridiculed. Should we be upset if we're mocked and ridiculed? Absolutely not. Why? Because he's already done it before us. Christ died on the cross. Should we be offended if we are martyred for the faith? We don't see martyrdom in America, but martyrdom is going on around the world. Should we be offended about that? No, because I have an obligation, a personal obligation to realize that I'm no better, I'm not greater than my master. I'm not greater than the Lord. And so identifying the Lordship of Christ makes a major significant difference in how I respond to situations in life. And uh, I like what Adrian Rogers said. He said, you don't make him Lord. He's Lord already. You just recognize it. And it would be well if we had some folks just starting to recognize the Lordship of Christ. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot said this, until the will and the affections are brought under the authority of Christ, we have not begun to understand let alone to accept his lordship. That really convicted me when I read that, that quote. And I thought, wow, my will, my affections need to be brought underneath the authority of Christ. Why? There is absolutely no way that I can, uh, in, in real time, be able to acknowledge that I am aware of the lordship of Christ. My will's got to be surrendered to his will. My ways in life's got to be surrendered to his ways and uh, because he is the master. I like what Vance Hafner said. He says, if I had one sermon to preach, it would be on the lordship of Christ. When we get right on that point, we are right all down the line. And here's why. God honors the exaltation of his son. And there is absolutely no way that we can enjoy God's honoring and blessing of us when we're rejecting the Lordship of Christ. And so I just wanted to challenge you tonight with this matter of identifying 
the lordship of Christ. Is he Lord in your life by word or mouth only? Or is he Lord in your life at every area of your life by uh, you following his commands and obeying and exalting and lifting up and adoring who he is? And so he is our Lord. So why don't we live like he's our Lord? Amen. Why don't we challenge others to surrender a life to Jesus and their Lord and as their Savior? Amen.